Welcome to In the Spirit of Learning. Back to the podcast, everybody. I'm super excited to share with you a very special episode. Just a few weeks ago on our campus, we had a very special presentation from author Rob Eaton. Rob is the author of a brand new book that is about to be published. It is titled Improving Learning and Mental Health in the College Classroom. The title of this specific presentation was Boost Learning, Reduce Stress, and Teaching More with Mental Health in Mind. So we're excited to share with you the audio of that particular presentation. It was one of the best attended presentations on teaching and learning we've had on campus in a while. And the best part is that it was given by one of our very own faculty. Rob is a good friend and one of the best speakers I know. So I hope you enjoy this podcast. Over the past few years, a small collaboration on campus um, led by Rob Eaton began to explore in earnest the issue of classroom and curriculum practices that have direct bearing on student mental well-being. This effort gave rise to a body of scholarship and research whose product will soon be uh, published through the West Virginia University Press and edited by James Lang, who, as you may remember, is a revered voice in learning and teaching nationwide and a former speaker at this event. Uh, This book is entitled Helping, Not Hindering, How Professors Can Make Life Better for Students with Mental Health Challenges. Rob Eaton, Bonnie Moon, and Steve Hunsaker have made significant inroads into this essential and timely topic. And we will be blessed by their efforts as Rob shares his presentation today. While Brother Eaton is well-known and well-loved uh, across campus, I, I want to share a little bit of background and biography because I think it demonstrates not only his capacity, but also his passion for learning and teaching. Raised in the Seattle area, Rob served a mission in Germany and earned a degree in international relations from BYU. After teaching political science for a year at BYU, Rob earned a law degree from Stanford University where he graduated with honors. He practiced law and worked as an executive in Seattle for 10 years before leaving the legal and corporate world to teach religion. He taught institute and seminaries in his hometown of Auburn, Washington for three years before coming to BYU-Idaho in 2004. At BYU-Idaho, Rob has taught religion, served on the committee that helped create foundations, helped create the, the Pakistan Foundations course, has overseen pathway and online learning for four years, served as the Associate Academic Vice President for Learning and Teaching for four years, and helped create and teach the Progressing Teacher course Uh, for new and other interested faculty members. He is currently finalizing a text that is used for that course that is called Architects of Learning, Teaching Students, and Designing Courses at BYU-Idaho. Incidentally, that that book and its contents are available on the Learning and Teaching website uh, if you want to uh, peruse it. He teaches once again in the Religion Department now and is also a Learning and Teaching Fellow Uh, and is continuing to teach in the Progressing Teacher course. Rob and his wife, Diane, have four children and eight grandchildren. From 2013 to 2016, they served as the leaders of the Washington Federal Way mission. Rob and Diane enjoy hiking together. 
Rob also enjoys backcountry uh, backpacking and camping, and Diane humors him. Contrary to rumors, Rob has never played in a single NFL or NBA game. He does enjoy running, uh, triathlons, pickleball, photography, accordion music, or just general music, right? And accordion music, too. Uh, traveling and studying languages. He is the author and co-author of several books, including President Eyring's biography. It's my great honor to introduce you to him to you. He is uh, my mentor. Uh, he's a valued co colleague and, more importantly, a dear friend. So, Rob. Thank you so much. Thank you for that generous introduction. It's uh, been a privilege to work with Sid these last several years. I'm shocked so many people came. I don't know if when you fast, food that doesn't normally sound appealing begins to grow on you. Like pretty soon you're hallucinating about eating just a few pitted green olives. Everything sounds good. Apparently, if you keep people from gathering long enough, they will come to hear anybody. So uh, I'm grateful that you came today. The former attorney in me desperately wants to start with uh, a long list of disclaimers. But fortunately for you, the uh, inner teacher in me has prevailed, and I'll start with a story. As we were completing, uh, nearing completion of our manuscript uh, and sprinkling quotes from students we'd interviewed in focus groups throughout the book, students with mental health challenges, it occurred to me that our extraordinary research assistant, Alexis McKee, had mentioned that she had dealt with some anxiety issues herself and that she might have something to add. So I just said, hey, Alexis, if you want to add something, just write it up for us. Her story amazed me. She said that she'd had anxiety as long as she could remember. In third grade, her teacher described what anxiety was and said that it was a, a sometimes feeling, not an all-the-time feeling. And that puzzled her, because what the teacher described was something she felt almost constantly. By the time she was in high school, she had been in therapy for years, tried multiple antidepressants, had missed more school than she cared to acknowledge. Worst of all, she said she felt all alone. But Alexis had a dream. She wanted to teach. She wanted to be an elementary school teacher. And she knew that to do that, she would need to earn a college degree, something no one in her family had ever done. So with her parents, she went to visit college campuses, and it was a strange new experience for them. I honestly did not know if I would be able to survive college. And to be honest, that was a fair concern on her part, because she was so shy, she told me, that if she was in a grocery store, and somebody entered the store whom she knew, she would hide so that she wouldn't have to talk with them. And this next thought's really profound. She wondered, how could I possibly make it in a place where you have to create a second family? Fortunately, Alexis overcame her fears and came to BYU-Idaho, and I would love to tell you it was smooth sailing after that, but it was not. The anxiety she'd mostly gotten under control in high school came back with a vengeance. She says she cried almost every day for the first three months. Not knowing exactly what her professors expected, she worked 13 hours a day and ate less and slept less. And finally, a couple of professors said things to her that changed her life. Now, I want to preface this by saying our message today is not lower the bar for your students with mental health challenges and they'll be better off. But for a, a perfectionist like Alexis, this was the right message for someone to share, that it's okay to be just okay some of the time. Don't place all of your self-worth in your GPA. That advice, she says, changed your life. 
Now, she still has hard days, but in her words, with the help of her strength and medication and exercise and diet, um, she's thriving. She says she still has bad days where she wants to disappear or drop out, but she's no longer afraid. She's been given the tools to succeed, and best of all, she says, that's the beauty of this university. Students have professors that are aware of their struggles and are willing to talk about it. I am so grateful for that. It really saved my life. I, I wish Alexis could be here today at this front table, but she's teaching. And at the end of this semester, she'll graduate. First in her family, pardon me, with a degree in teacher education. She'll watch me crying like this on the video, but would you give a hand for Alexis persevering? I'm grateful for you being this kind of teacher already. I'm preaching to the choir. I doubt there's a better faculty in the country already. So my hope is that there might just be a thing or two that I say that sparks an idea for you to take your, your game to the next level, to do even more, to help more of your students learn and have them help them experience less unnecessary stress in their lives. What I share today is grounded in the work that Steve and Bonnie and I, I have done. I forgot to tell Sid, they've, we've changed the, the title of the book. It's now Improving Learning and Mental Health in the College Classroom. It's been a joy to collaborate with Steve and Bonnie. They are both brilliant and good, which is a rare and wonderful combination. Steve is really my mentor in the scholarship of learning and teaching. For too many years, my engagement in the scholarship of learning and teaching consisted of asking Steve what he'd learned lately and then trying to act on that. He's introduced me to a wonderful world of literature written by kindred spirits interested in teaching better. It's a world worth, worth exploring. And Bonnie is so brilliant that although she already has a master's and a doctorate in math, she's now working on a master's in nuclear engineering. And she's been open with her own uh, saga of depression uh, in our book and with others. Uh, their perspectives and experience made this a much better book. We're grateful to James Lang and West Virginia University Press for publishing the book and grateful that they have let us, thanks to Nate Wise's great negotiation skills, uh, have free access to an electronic copy of the book. So you can, uh, we'll be sending out a link, but you can find this in Aquella. Uh, just search for Improved Learning and you'll find the book. I'll take questions at the end. I'm going to use a tool that's uh, maybe new to some of you. Some of you might know. But you might go ahead and scan this in now if you want to ask a question, or if you prefer to just type in slido.com and the event number. I've, I love this tool because, A, it was really easy for me to learn how to use. And that's high on my list of things I'm looking for in, a, in academic technology. But it also levels the playing field. Too often when it comes to taking questions in class or an event like this, it's just people like me who are willing to pop off who get to ask the questions. I found this tool which lets people ask questions anonymously, makes it easier for people who are more introverted or especially for people who have higher levels of anxiety to post a question of their own. It also lets me see all the questions and lets you vote on the questions you'd most like to hear. So I can make sure I spend the few minutes I'll have in Q&A to address the questions of most concern to most people. If you want to know how to use this more, just check with Faculty Technology Center or use that internet thing. Let me first give you a quick overview of the book, and then I'll share samples of a couple of our chapters. Here are five, four or five premises from the book. First, that mental health challenges are real and widespread. That phrase comes from the US Surgeon General's advisory report in 2021. 
If, my hunch is most of you believe this already, and that's why you came. The rest of you are my friends. Thanks for coming. Uh, and, but a few of you came just because you're open-minded. You're skeptical of the premise, but you're open-minded. I'm especially grateful that you would come. I'm not going to spend enough time on this point to change your mind. But let me invite you to be as analytically rigorous in examining this question as you expect students to be in your discipline. Don't just go with the gut feeling that this is just a change in measurement and that students just need to move more pipe and buck up and they'll be fine. You might study something like protecting youth mental health, the US Surgeon General's advisory, uh, or the introductory chapter of our book where we've gathered together a lot of data and studies. Or if you prefer a more anecdotal approach, I highly recommend Jane Clayson Johnson's Silent Souls Weeping, which chronicles her own unexpected and debilitating bout of depression. I'll tell you that my, <clears throat> and I get a water sip, <clears throat> my experience has been the same as, as Elder Kapishka's. Thank you so much. Learning more has led to more understanding, more acceptance, more compassion, and more love from me uh, about my students. It's true of mental health. It's true anytime I learn about their backstories. I, I tend to seem a little differently. <clears throat> Our second premise is that too much anxiety and depression interferes with and undermines learning. Note that we say too much. Not opposed to stress altogether. Stress actually helps me teach and uh, speak better and run faster, but I sing solos much worse when I'm stressed. Uh, <clears throat> I'm worse every time in a public performance than in a rehearsal. I, I shoot free throws worse when I golf with President Clark, add a stroke to every hole for me. Uh, it works differently for different people. I love the line from uh, The Hobbit uh, where Bilbo's having the, uh, the riddle challenge with Gollum. Tolkien writes, he began to get frightened, and that is bad for thinking. I love what uh, James Medina has written about this. He's a brain scientist, and he summarizes the research this way. Stressed people don't do math very well. They don't process language very well. Uh, they have poorer memories, both short and long forms. Stressed individuals do not generalize or adapt old pieces of information to new scenarios, as well as non-stressed individuals. They can't concentrate. In almost every way it can be measured, chronic stress hurts our ability to learn. Other brain scientists points out it's not just chronic stress, but stress in doses that are too large. So little can help. When I drive to Salt Lake, I think I'm actually a better, safer driver listening to an audiobook for much of the way because it helps me stay awake past my lad. But as I get closer to Salt Lake and traffic thickens, at some point, I want to turn off the, the book. In fact, it's gotten worse as I've gotten older. But I feel like cognition is a zero-sum game, and I got to harness all of my cognitive powers to focus on the increasingly complex task before me. Well, one of the comments that a student in one of our focus groups made intrigued me. She said, it's hard to give my full attention to the teacher when I have so much commotion and loudness happening within me. This is life for a surprising number of our students. And there are things that we do that may actually accidentally turn up that volume, or some good things we do that can turn that volume down so that they're competing with less as they're trying to learn. Not only does, um, do mental health challenges interfere with, with learning, they also lead to more students dropping out. The studies are all over the map on this, but 
One says that students with depression are twice as likely to drop out of college. Another recent study says that a third of students who drop out drop out because of mental health challenges. And then this fact really pricks my heart. Nearly half of those who drop out feel like a failure. What a sad result for, for so many people. For, for you and me, college was a time that helped validate us. We were able to discover our, our potential. But for far too many of our students with mental health challenges, rather than fanning the flame of hope, college extinguishes it. So what's the answer? I'll tell you what it's not, and that is lowering the bar. Steve, Bonnie, and I all consider ourselves to be high expectations teachers. It's the number one complaint I get from my, my religion students, is that I'm requiring too much work of them. Coddling them, I think, does a disservice to them. We do not advocate coddling, although I will quickly say, being reasonably flexible, like most of our bosses have been with us through the years that we've worked, that's not the same as coddling. That's just kind of professionalism. So we'll talk a little bit about a reasonable amount of flexibility later on. The bottom line is that virtually every tactic we recommend in this book, we would recommend even if you miraculously had no students with mental health challenges because they improve learning. This is one of, one of those wonderful situations where rather than choosing between improving mental health and improving learning, we can do both and. When we teach with intentionality, when we consider the impact of our practices and alternatives, we can find ways to teach that both improve learning and the wellness of our students. The last point I want to make is that, that we're not therapists. It's illegal for us to usurp the role of mental health uh, practitioners and impractical. We know that some of you have got uh, offices in old dormitories uh, with cool furniture, maybe even couches. There can be a great temptation there to engage in psychotherapy. We would ask that you not engage in psychotherapy. Instead, we just want you to connect students with mental health professionals when you see that they uh, have that need, and we'll talk more about how to do that in a moment. So here are our seven strategic chapters. Each one focuses on something that we might have explored in a book not about improving mental health, but I'm going to highlight two of them. And with those two, I'm just giving you a sliver of what we've got in the book. And the first is awakening students' innate desire to learn. We've known for a long time through intuition and anecdotes and sound social science that people learn more when they're studying because they want to than because they have to, or they need to get good grades. But what intrigued me as I researched and wrote this chapter was that not only do students learn more, but they can better buffer the stresses and disappointments of life if they've got more intrinsic motivation. We all travel bumpy roads, not equally bumpy, but we all travel bumpy roads in life. Intrinsic motivation enables us to absorb some of life's bumps better. Let me cite just a couple of studies to underscore that point. First is a longitudinal study uh, involving 462 Chinese undergraduate students. Every three months, they were given a survey that asked them about their depressive symptoms, the extent and nature of their academic and social hassles, and the nature of their goals, in how intrinsic or extrinsic they were. What researchers found was that everybody had academic and social hassles, but after they had them, students who were, whose goals were highly intrinsic had fewer depressive symptoms than students whose goals were not very intrinsic. They experienced a lot more depressive symptoms. It was an observational study. I know it would be better if it were experimental, but 
The researchers concluded that intrinsic goals can protect undergraduate students experiencing high levels of social and academic hassles from depressive symptoms. Another similar study with Indonesian economics undergraduate students concluded, uh, found similar uh, results for anxiety. Students who were motivated purely by extrinsic things like grade point tended to have high anxiety. And those who were motivated by things like interest and challenge tended to have lower levels of anxiety. Now layer on top of that this bit of data. This comes from Jean Twenge's book, iGen. She drew on uh, 50 years of research from 1966 to uh, 2016, uh, a survey that was done annually of first-year university students. And they were asked, how important is it to you to become very well off financially? How important is it to you to develop a life philosophy? You can see that it used to not be very important to students to become very well off financially, and now it's important to a whole lot of students. And the converse, the, the flip side of that is developing a philosophy of life used to be a top priority, and now it's shrunk tremendously. This is both bad news and good news. Uh, the way Twangy describes it, money is in and meaning is out. The bad news is we've got a lot more students showing up with extrinsic motivation and less intrinsic motivation. But the good news is that might be an opportunity. I, as I was preparing this presentation, I thought, wait a minute. We, if we know if you're extrinsically motivated, you tend to have higher levels of anxiety, and we know that students are showing up with more extrinsic than intrinsic motivation, maybe we shouldn't be surprised when we combine those two facts that we've got a lot more students showing up with higher levels of anxiety. Now, the solution is not as simple as just getting them all to have intrinsic motivation, but can't hurt and it will help them learn more. Anything we can do to move them from the, mo the extrinsic motivation of the end of the spectrum to the intrinsic motivation and can help them both improve their learning and better buffer life stresses and uh, um, disappointments. Incidentally, I'm not opposed to extrinsic motivation. I'll use it to get students into my office. But then as I get to know them and connect them, I hope that morphs into intrinsic motivation. It's belts and suspenders, or maybe training wheels. Angela Duckworth calls purpose the intention to contribute to the well-being of others. And she says that in her study of grit paragons, she's found that the most gritty people see their ultimate aims as deeply connected to the world beyond themselves. So what if we simply helped our students connect what they learn in our classes to the world beyond themselves and making it a better place? There's a whole body of literature on purpose, a form, in my mind, of intrinsic motivation, and it's powerful. Um, the bottom line is that purpose fuels grit. If we can help our students study because they want to, because they see a reason for studying, not just because they have to, they'll persevere better, they'll, they'll weather the academic and social hassles better that they encounter. In a minute, I'll give you an opportunity in, in small groups with people at your table to discuss some things you're doing already to foster intrinsic motivation. My hunch is that you are, that some of you are already doing things. And maybe you've had an idea, just as we've talked, what could I do to help my students care about more than the grade, to actually really want to learn? Or maybe you want to confess something. Something's come to mind that you're doing that doesn't help. I'll start the group confession. I noticed as I was preparing this presentation that I would get emails, as we all are these days, about students staying home because they're sick uh, and missing class. Sometimes they ask about grades, the impact on their grade. 
But I realized that all the time I was answering along these lines. Sorry to hear you're sick. Don't worry about the absence. You can miss three times without it affecting your grade. If you do end up having more absences, you can make this one up. I was answering from an extrinsic motivation perspective. And I can't help but wonder if that doesn't foster extrinsic motivation. We know that uh, David Yeager and Angela Duckworth and their colleagues have done research that David Yeager shared with us when he was here. We've got to be careful about how we praise. If we say you're a gifted writer, that fosters a fixed mindset. Either you're a gifted writer or you're not. If you say, great work, how many drafts did you do? Wonderful job using three drafts to polish your prose to get to this spot. That fosters a growth mindset. My wife has been mindful of that, and when she taught for Pathway for several years, she would be intentional in the way she praised students. And she wouldn't praise them based on grades. She would congratulate them, not on getting an A, but on learning a lot, or exerting the effort that they needed to, to get the A. I haven't seen any research on this. By the way, I've got lots of ideas for research if any of you need to do research for a, a dissertation. But one thought I've had is, I wonder how our rhetoric shapes our students' motivation. I wonder how this email pushes people towards an extrinsic mindset. So now, I say this instead. Sorry to hear you're sick. Here's the outline in the slides from the day you missed. It, we talked about this, and it was important. It was stuff that mattered. Here's why. I hope you'll talk to one of your teammates about what you missed, and then I'd be happy to talk to you more about it. I'm now trying to send the message that class matters for much more than the grade. The concepts we covered in class are far more significant. It's a simple little change that I'm trying to make. So maybe you've got something else you want to confess. Now, this is reckless to do a small group discussion with this many people. But fortunately, I have a bell. And so you'll all stop magically, as if hypnotized, when I ring the bell in three and a half minutes. And uh, just discuss actually whatever the heck you want to discuss. Get to know each other if you like. But if you've got some ideas for fostering intrinsic motivation, stuff you're already doing that maybe your colleagues could benefit from hearing, or something has just come to mind, go ahead and share it. Ready, break. Sid, did you happen to get any comments you want to share? We're just going to do like three minutes, yeah, set the timer for three minutes. Comment she's just dying to tell us about. Um, one thing that I do is I ask my, I just have the students at the first of the class. I just sit them down and say, okay, really? Why are you in my class? And then we talk about it, and some will volunteer, some won't. The poor little freshman will say, it was just on my list. The senior will go, oh, well, I could do this and this and this. And then they learn what others are doing, and then they up their game, because they're like, oh. So a great thought, having them share different purposes, but exposing them to some students' higher purposes. By the way, Duckworth and Jaeger call this self-transcendent purpose. Um, Sid, uh, anybody else that you found? Anybody else want to volunteer comment? Uh, Kinda's got one for us. She's got the interesting problem. All of us have some students who have to have some extrinsic motivation because they've got scholarships to keep. Kinda teaches psychology and has a bunch of nurse people who want to get into the nursing program who have to get good grades. Thank you. So I teach development through the lifespan, which is now required for both psychology and for nursing majors. And a lovely group of people. I love the class that I teach. I feel very passionate about it. But one thing I try to focus on in the class is the applicability of what we're learning. Yes, it checks off a box here at BYU-Idaho. Yes, it's going to help you get a degree. But it's also not only going to help you in your careers, but be better parents, be better spouses, that kind of thing. 
This notion of applicability, there's, a, I, just, I feel like an imposter when I talk about any of the psychological studies, but uh, DC and Ryan have a theory, the control value theory, that suggests the, the more control students have and the more value they see in what they're studying, the greater their motivation will be. Uh, Kinda's increasing the value to students as she helps make it applicable and helps them connect the dots to see how they can actually use this in real life. I feel like if someone had come to me during math in high school and said, uh, we want you to pretend you're a consultant for the Seattle Supersonics. The new coach wants to know if he should focus on reducing turnovers, increasing shooting percentage, uh, or something else. I would have thought, you can use math to analyze basketball? I would have stayed in math a lot longer if I saw that you could use it. Uh, let's have one or two more comments. I had a student yesterday who petitioned to drop my class with a W because he's so anxious about it that he, he can't handle it. He's uh, unable to communicate in class. He's unable to mm -hmm. communicate to me in any way effectively except by email. And we, he was um, so uptight, he actually broke down in class. I pulled him out to, outside of the building wow. so I could have a conversation with him. But um, this is hitting way too close to home. And a lot of his issues were very much extrinsic uh, challenges. So the more we can do to find a way to get them away from that, um, Boy, I found missionaries who were focused on having a lot of baptisms to impress other people. Life is pretty stressful for those missionaries. Missionaries who are serving because they love the Lord um, had a very different experience. Hmm. And one of Elder Oak's first talk as a member of the Quorum of the Twelve was the reasons we serve. And suggests essentially as we move up the totem pole, up the hierarchy of motivation to serving out of love of God and his children, Everything is better than when we serve for lesser motives. And you'll notice the lesser motives on his thing are all extrinsic. Uh, well, thank you for those great comments. Let me just add to that with one of my own uh, that's similar to what someone mentioned here. Uh, so especially if, if they're not majors in your discipline, I find it's, they, they need this first step to connect the dots how can what I learn here be used to help make the world a better place? Fortunately for all of you, it's obvious. Every one of you believes, I think, in your discipline, you can make the world a better place. But we need to help our students connect the dots, so that first question can help. Uh, by the way, this exercise that I do, asking these two questions, was inspired by a conversation I had with a student in the gardens as I was researching this chapter. She was studying her scriptures, and I intruded upon her time and said, May I ask, are you studying for a religion class? She said, I am. I said, what if your reason for studying were that you had a friend in spiritual need and you wanted to help her? How would you approach your preparation differently than if you were doing it just to get an A? She thought for a minute and said, hmm, I would probably read more and scan less. And I thought, huh, even in a religion class, easy to have the extrinsic motivations. So I've tried to help students think about my class in terms of what if my goal is to be able to help other people in spiritual need? How will I approach this class differently? And then I, I do this on the first day of the semester. The first day of the semester is a great day to help light the flame of students' inner desire to learn. But sadly, we often extinguish that flame by making it syllabus day. And, and it's like the least motivating day of the semester. 
Nobody comes home at dinner and says, and then the professor told me about the lay policy. I've got a whole chapter on this called Killing Syllabus Day and Making Over the Syllabus. It's in the next book. But use some time. Consider using some time on that first day. First of all, engaging them in the content of the course, helping them see the vision for the course, how it relates to life, how it is applicable, and then invite them to connect those dots and then give them time. I call this exercise ponder, post, and peruse. I use Padlet, which is another tool I like because it's easy to use. You can use it for free, make up to three. Then if you need to know how to get an account through BYU-Idaho, call the FTC and they'll help you. I also like it because it's another um, tool that levels the playing field. Again, I find it's students like me most likely to make comments in class, but I can have everybody simultaneously participate. What Doug Lamoff calls participation ratio skyrockets when I have students write. The quality of comments often goes up, but I'm getting comments from all my students, including students who are more introverted and have higher levels of anxiety. And they write some great stuff. This is from uh, this semester, I think. I will study with my heart and truly seek to come closer to God in my studies. I will turn away from the checking the boxes off method. Another wrote, I want to study to be able to strengthen my foundations and testimony because my GPA doesn't matter in heaven. I will dive into scriptures and talks to understand different concepts and learnings that I may learn and show with my, uh, share with my friends and family. So those are some ideas for how we can foster more intrinsic motivation. The next idea comes from a chapter on fostering emotional resilience. Uh, this one's based more on qualitative research that Peter Felton, who spoke to us last year, and Leo Lambert did as they interview, interviewed hundreds of students at dozens of institutions. They found that there was this shared tendency among students to believe that college is a solo endeavor. And they also found that universities didn't really help. We sometimes reinforced that message inadvertently, leading students to conclude that life at college was an individualistic, anxiety-inducing slog. Students are ashamed to admit what they do not know and are embarrassed to let others know that they are confused or uncertain or struggling with a personal issue. That's true for getting help generally, but it's especially true for getting help with mental health challenges. Before the pandemic, the World Health Organization did a massive survey of almost 14,000 first-year university students globally and asked if they encountered in the coming year some significant emotional uh, mental health challenge that interfered with their ability to get their work done, how likely would they be to get help? Only 25% said they would definitely get help from a counseling center, a, a doctor, or a religious advisor. So they looked into the thinking of the other 75% and found that of those students, 8% had had a plan to kill themselves within the last year. In other words, of the students surveyed, 6%, if I've done my math right, uh, had a plan within the last 12, years, 12 months to commit suicide, but we're not saying they would definitely get help if they had something that interfered with their ability to get their studies done. Why not? 32% of them said they were just too embarrassed. And in other surveys, uh, many say they feel like they just need to do it themselves. I love what, uh, well, so my, my thought here is that we want to, we have an opportunity to normalize getting help, to destigmatize getting help. We're in a position of influence. We, teachers were influencers before influencers were a thing. And we can use that influence for good purposes. And here are four ways that we can do it. Portraying getting help as something that's wise, not weak. 
sharing how we get help ourselves, and then telegraphing a willingness to be a little bit flexible and help connect students to resources if they've got some mental health challenges, and then finally connecting students in need with those mental health resources. Uh, I, love what, I love Lisa Nunn's evidence-based, very practical book, 33 Simple Strategies for Faculty. She focuses on helping first-year students and first-generation students and says we ought to talk about doing things like going to the, uh, the tutoring center and using the rest of the resources that you can learn about at 2 o'clock this afternoon as if those are just normal parts of what successful students do, like, like practice is a normal part of what professional athletes do who are successful. This is not a thing that shows you're failing. It's a thing that shows you're, you're wise. I try to um, do this in a document I've created. I think we'll, we'll share this document when we send around a, a recording of this and a link to the book. Uh, Stan Kivett made this document originally, uh, and Paulette, uh, Paulette Kirkham made it better. I introduce it with this long list of a variety of resources with this language, which you're more than welcome to use or improve upon if you like. One of the hallmarks of gritty and successful people is that they are willing and able to get help when they need it. They realize that taking advantage of helpful resources is wise, not weak. And at BYU-Idaho, there are some great resources available to help you succeed academically, emotionally, physically, and socially. I like to just lump those all in together. Don't know what a word means? Yeah, look it up in the dictionary. Dictionaries are a cool thing. Uh, struggling with dys dyslexia? We got some people who can help with that. Struggling with uh, managing your time? Student support. We got some people who can help with that. Struggling with mental health challenges? We got some people who can help with that. Sister Raina Alberto uh, spoke powerfully about mental health challenges. And she said, when we open up about our emotional challenges, admitting we're not perfect, we give others permission to share their struggles. Together, we realize there is hope, and we do not have to suffer alone. A couple of years ago, we had an Area 70 come to our stake and speak. And in the Saturday evening session of conference, he mentioned that he takes medication for his anxiety. Afterwards, there was a line of about 15 people to talk with him, the longest I've seen. Uh, when we got home that night, uh, he said, I've never mentioned that in a talk before. I don't know why I did. But I've never gotten a reaction like that before. I've never had that many people come up to talk to me afterwards. And almost to a person, they were saying, wow, you struggle with anxiety? It, it helped them feel like that there was hope if this successful person could say, I have anxiety and I'm taking medication for it. So maybe you don't have a diagnosis. I don't, but I get chest pains when I get too stressed out these days. I have to be more intentional than I used to about coping with my anxiety. If I'm walking with a student through the gardens, I tell them, isn't this a wonderful place? It's rejuvenating. I come here to de-stress. It helps me. And sometimes I listen to an app. I listen to a meditation app uh, on Insight Timer about half an hour before this began, just to do some breathing exercises, look up at the sun, and uh, de-stress. Mentioning that to a student can help. In fact, I, I mentioned to my students today that I, cycling with Todd Hammond yesterday, I made him listen to this whole spiel, the poor man. And he gave me some suggestions for improving it. And I've incorporated those suggestions, and it's a better presentation because I got help from a friend. When we let students know that we look up words in the dictionary, that we get help from friends, that we use resources, it makes it safe for them to do so. Depression thrives in secrecy but shrinks in empathy, wrote taught Sister Alberto, quoting Jane Clayson Johnson there. Together we can break through the clouds of isolation and stigma so the burden of shame is lifted 
and miracles of healing can occur. One of the ways I try to normalize getting help is just putting in my syllabus something and saying, look, lots of people have mental health challenges. It's a thing. Sometimes it interferes with your ability to do assignments. I get that. Now, I put this in there for a couple of reasons. One, I wanted to destigmatize mental health challenges and getting help for them. And two, too many of my students were showing up uh, the last week of the semester with the 20% wanting to see if they could pass the class and they crashed and burned for mental health reasons and it was too late for me in good conscience to, and for them to do enough to be able to pass the class. So I wanted to get this in front of them right out the gate. And I let them know, look, come and talk to me. I can help you, but it's gotta be real time or close to real time. The sooner you come and talk, the better I can help you. And I let them know, you're not gonna get a free pass. You're still gonna have to do every bit as much work as anybody else to pass the class or get an A, but there's room for some flexibility. And on that note, let me just say, I've changed over the years, I've morphed. Uh, and it occurs to me that the more our, some of our policies match up with the kind of flexibility most of us have experienced in the workplace, uh, the more defensible they are, and the more I can get students to not throw in the towel and actually learn much more than they otherwise would have. I love what President Gordon B. Hinckley said. You know this quote, help these young people, I know you do, but reach a little lower to lift them a little higher. I'd forgotten about the last part of this quote though until Todd made a suggestion that caused me to look this up last night. Be kind and generous and helpful and patient and encouraging. Do I want to teach my students responsibility, accountability and punctuality? I do. I've got some policies that relate to those, but I've also got some nuance and calibration and a bit of flexibility in those policies so that I can implement this approach to lifting that President Hinckley outlined. Finally, we can connect students with resources. I love getting them in my office one-on-one. -on -one. For some classes, I have an assignment where they need to come and meet, meet with me. With other students, I send out an email in the third week of the semester or so letting them know that I noticed that they're falling behind and I want to help them uh, and inviting them to come in and meet with me. I, I first try to connect with them in my office. Just last week I came up with a new technique that I'm really excited about. I say, would you show me two or three pictures or videos from your phone that will give me a glimpse into who you are? And I have seen some amazing things in the last week and a half. I'm going to keep doing this. It's, they open right up. And then I'll ask them how it's going generally, what's going well, what's challenging. I find students who are flunking my class are often flunking many classes. And for some of them, they've got issues that have nothing to do with mental health. Some of them are first semester students and have not yet figured out you're supposed to actually study outside of class. And they're puzzled that they're not doing better in their classes. I can help them. Some of them are staying up all night watching video games. I've got some ideas. I help them a little bit. And I connect them with any resources that are available on campus. But those resources, in some cases, include mental health resources. Come this afternoon, you'll learn about probably some new resources. Like if you didn't know about Melissa Russell's Thrive program, it's amazing. We should be recommending every student who struggles with mental health challenges participate in her program. The, the folks at JED, which is a nonprofit foundation that combats uh, suicide on campus, have generously given us uh, permission to print this, and it's, it's right there for you. This guide can help you support students with mental health challenges. They say a proven way to prevent suicide, and I would say any mental health challenge, is to teach young people how to ask for help when they need it. It's a skill that will keep them safe, build their emotional resilience, and serve them well their whole lives.
But the good news is you do not have to be a mental health professional to support a student with their mental health. You just need to pay attention, listen, and connect students to help if or when they need it. What I sense that students need is acute, and you can figure out how to do that using this pamphlet. I suggest let's go over to the counseling center together and make an appointment. No students turned me down. In fact, I mentioned this recently in an ecclesiastical context, and that night I got a text from a Relief Society president saying, would you walk with me to the counseling center tomorrow? She's a leader, but she just wanted someone to literally walk through the doors together with her. We can't be their therapists, but we can connect them with some, and that can make a huge difference. Well, those are a few ideas for how we can destigmatize de getting help. I hope these and the other ideas spark some thoughts for how you can help more of your students succeed. If, maybe you'll read the book. If you do and you implement every idea, Steve, Bonnie, and I guarantee you, you will never have another student failure class or drop out of school because of mental health challenges. And you'll lose 20 pounds and never have to wear a mask again. No, none, none of that will happen. Um, in fact, it can be frustrating when it doesn't because you're thinking, I'm doing all this stuff and, and I still have students failing. You might even be prompted to wonder why why bother? Why even try? I've got a one-word answer. Alexis. We've all got an Alexis in our class. In fact, we've all got probably multiple Alexises or Alexi. I've heard it both ways in your class. <laughs> and if we can do things that are going to help all our students learn more and help change the lives of some of our students, help them earn a degree that will bring them satisfaction, it's worth trying. Thank you for being the kinds of people who care enough, the kinds of teachers who care enough to try. I bear you my witness that as we seek to reach a little lower, to lift students higher in kindness, generosity, and patience, that we can, without coddling students, help more students realize not only their academic, but their divine potential. Of that I testify in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. amen. And I've got time for, oh, thank you. I'll tackle two questions fast. How do I help inspire students in a class to have patience for their classmates who may be suffering from mental health challenges uh, that they're unaware of? You know, you might, I, I'm just off the top of my head, I wonder if you might sometimes say, I, I'll ask students, uh, some, many of you struggle with mental health challenges, what are some keys to succeeding in college? They will openly and quickly raise their hands and share what they've learned. So you might even ask, hey, would some of you who experience mental health challenges share how it affects you so that those of us who don't have as many challenges can better understand that and be more mindful as we treat it? Just a thought. One more question. How do I help inspire students in a class? Oh, how open with students should an instructor be about his or her own mental health problems or experiences? I think it's a matter of personal taste, what you're comfortable with. But uh, Jim Lang, in his latest book, Distraction, talks about having panic attacks, which were a new and strange thing for him, and what he's learned about mindfulness. Again, I think it tends to normalize it. I, I don't see much downside, but certainly don't do anything that you're not comfortable with. Is the goal to make the classroom a safe place the wrong goal? Is our energy better spent in building brave students rather than safe spaces? That's an excellent question. Um, in the chapter on emotional resilience, I say if all we've done is make it safe and haven't helped them develop resilience, we're, we're selling them short. We need to do both, to be honest. Uh, 
and, and there's a time and place for everything, but you can kind of escalate and over time introduce them to tougher things. If I'm teaching nursing, I, at some point I gotta have my students taking tough multiple choice exams to prepare for the NCLEX, I just, I just have to. But that doesn't mean I have to make that the first thing they do the first week right out of the gate. I can help them start with some small wins. So we can help build up resilience uh, in a way that's mindful. And again, our goal is not just self -spa uh, uh, safe spaces. Um, I love the Socratic method. I loved cold calling from law school because it was a game I was good at. But it turns out, and we've got a section on this, there are actually better ped uh, pedagogical techniques that result in more learning for all our students. So I've drift shifted to warm calling and writing exercises in ways that result in more of my students participating and succeeding um, and yeah, it does make it a safer space, but it leads to more learning for all our students. Thank you so much for coming. May God bless you as you try to implement some of these ideas. This has been In the Spirit of Learning. Until next week, you can find every episode wherever you get your podcasts and on the BYU-Idaho Learning and Teaching website. Thank you for listening.